This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. And today's message I've entitled Hope in the Next Generation. We're taking a look at what the Bible says about rearing children. Now, I know what you're thinking for just a second. Some of you are thinking, I don't have kids so I can check out. No, 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 no. You don't get off that easily. There's something in this for everybody today. You might say, my kids are already grown, they're out of the house. No, 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 no. There's something for you here today, I promise you. So uh, this is not just a message geared towards parents. This is a, a message geared towards Christians. And so I want to encourage you, stay checked in, jot down some thoughts that are helpful to you as well. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start in verse number 1. We're going to read the whole chapter because uh, the whole chapter kind of gives us a little bit of a context uh, as far as what God wants us to get from this passage this morning. Uh, So we're going to read the the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 6. We're really going to focus on verses 4 through 11. That's where we're going to spend kind of the bulk of our time here today. Now just to give you an indication as well, this passage is written to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And so God's telling them, hey, when you go into this land that flows with milk and honey, I want you to tell your kids about all that I've done. I want you to tell them what uh, I brought you through. I want you to teach them diligently everything that I've taught you. And so he's giving them guidelines to follow. And he's saying, hey, if you do this, if you just do what I say, I promise you, you'll be blessed. Now, before we get into this, there's a couple of caveats I gotta put on this, okay? God is writing in this passage here to the children of Israel. If you are not a Jew, this does not directly apply to you. But there's principles that the church can gather from this that are super helpful, that are super, super applicable to us, okay? So again, it's really important to understand that sometimes people get what's referred to as the replacement theology, which is not a correct form of theology, that says that now that the, the Jesus Christ has come, the church is Israel. And so everywhere in the Old Testament that you see Israel, that's really talking about the church. That's not the case at all. Uh, Israel was and Israel is what it is, uh, and the church is different. It's, a, it's the new covenant with Christ. And so so just say that by way of caveat on today. So he's not directly speaking to us, but there's principles that we can gather that will be helpful to us. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse number 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whithersoever go you to possess it. That you might fear the Lord thy God and keep all of his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's sons all the days of thy life and that thy days might be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it that it may be well with thee that I might increase mightily as the Lord God thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Now pause here for just a second. Those first three verses were written to Israel, but there's principles that are applicable to you and I. Do what God says, and he'll bless you. Follow God all the days of your life. You'll get the good stuff that comes from life. The things that God teaches you, you need to teach to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, okay? This is a principle that applies to everyone throughout history. So again, he's speaking to the Jews here, but there's principles that you and I can gather that are still in effect for us today. Verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Shall talk of them while thou sittest in thine house. Thou walkest by the way when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand. 
They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. They shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, wells, and wells digs which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Now again, principle here, follow God and he's going to give you blessings that you don't deserve, that you had no part in, but he gives to you because he's good, he's gracious, and he's God. Verse number 12. Then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee out from the forth of the land of Egypt and the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and thou shalt swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God shall be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Now again, principles here. Don't go following after the gods of other people. Stay with your God because our God is a jealous God and it, lest his anger be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's a principle that still applies to us today. Verse 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded thee. Thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee. Thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. My son asketh thee in times to come, what saying, what mean these testimonies and statutes and judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then you shall say unto thy son, we were in Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon all the household before our eyes. He brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that it might preserve us alive, that is, at this day. Again, verse 24, applicable to you and I. God's given us these statutes that we would love him and fear him. Why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive, as it is this day. And it should be our righteousness if we observe to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. That's a lot, but it's so, so good. Depending on the type of house that you're raised in, some of you were raised in a Christian home, some of you weren't. Some of you were raised in a, a solid, holy, righteous Christian home. Some of you were Christian maybe in name only. Some of you attended church sporadically. Some of you didn't grow up in church at all. And the funny thing is, is about growing up is that you're kind of insulated from the outside world and you think whatever is happening in your household is just normal. Uh, this is just how people are. Or, or maybe you look on uh, television, you see things like the Brady Bunch or the Cosby Show and you're like, wow, that's what a family's supposed to look like. And we get this idea that whatever happening for me is, is probably already happening for everybody else. I remember Angela and I, when we first got married, uh, I grew up in a house where uh, to get your point across, you needed to raise your voice a little bit. And so Angela and I got married and I did what everybody does. You raise your voice. And she was like, stop yelling. It's just like, I'm not yelling, I'm raising my voice. She's like, it's the same thing. No, it's not. Funny thing is, is that my wife, again, we're getting to know each other in the early days of, of marriage. She tells me like, hey, nobody ever raised their voice in my house, like ever. And I was like, like ever, ever? And she was like, no. And I was like, well, that's abnormal. She's like, no, you're abnormal. She's like, no. And we began to talk back and forth about the way we were raised and maybe some good things and some bad things about the way each of us was raised and things like that. And we came to this super awesome, super spiritual conclusion. Well, if our kids turn out as good as us, I guess they'll be okay. Isn't that great? 
We felt like, hey, if we could at least do as good as our parents did, I think we'll be all right. And funny thing is, is that we really like, again, we're totally green as a gourd. We don't know the first thing about uh, raising kids or being there or anything like that. We just think to ourselves that. And then after about uh, six months of having kids, you realize like, hey, I think we need to do better than our parents did. Uh, and, and I used to say, one of my famous things, I would say, well, my parents used to do this and I turned out okay. And then one day my wife c- kindly uh, helped me realize you're not okay. <laughs> Duly noted. All right, so uh, we realized then early on, hey, I think we need to find a different path. Maybe there's a different way, and the uh, bookstores are full of books on parenting, and uh, some say spank, some say don't spank, some say be your kid's best friend, others say don't be your kid's friends, and, uh, and like, what is it? There's got to be something that's true, that's good, that we can like, take and run with, and we found that there is, and it's called the Bible. It's funny, people say, well, kids don't come with an instruction manual. Ha, ha, ha. Actually, they do. It's called the Bible. It makes it really easy when it comes to parenting because we come back and say, what does the Bible say? This passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 11, is referred to as the Shema passage, S-H-E-M-A, by the Jews. Uh, this is kind of, if you want to think of their doctrinal statement or kind of their creed, if you will, of what they believe, verses 4 through 11. Um, and it basically says, Hear, O Israel, that our God is one God. The word hear uh, is translated to the word Shema in the Hebrew, and so they call this the Shema passage. And so they couple this together with Deuteronomy chapter 11 and kind of put together, uh, if you will, a loose framework of a creed that they hold to of how they worship God. But there's a lot of good stuff for you and I who are not Jews, who are Bible-believing Christians that we can glean from this passage as well, and we're gonna jump into that this morning. First of all, before we can look at who we want our children to become, we need to first take a look at who we are. Isn't it funny that our tendency is always want to fix everybody else's problems but never actually take a look at ours? I don't know if you've ever known a mechanic who uh, he works on everybody else's cars and everybody else's cars are running really well but his cars are pieces of junk and can barely uh, drive and they're held together with bailing wire. You ever met a, a guy who's a financial planner who's broke himself? It's just like, wait, you, I think you're focusing on the wrong thing because you've got to take care of yourself. It's, it's funny because that's our tendency. And Jesus knows this, so Jesus says this, hey, if your brother has a speck in his eye, you need to first take the log out of your own eye before you help him first. Now, it's funny, sometimes people misapply that passage of Scripture, and they say, well, Jesus is just saying don't judge people. No, he's not. He's saying after you are in a spiritually healthy place yourself, you have the capability now to help other people. It's not about ignoring specks in other people's eyes. It's a matter of making sure that you have the capability to be able to help others. You think of like when you fly on an airplane, it says, when the oxygen mask falls from the overhead compartment, first do what? Put your mask on and then help others. Because here's the thing. Before I can begin to help other people, I gotta make sure that I'm healthy myself. And so again, it comes back to making sure that I'm right with God before I can ever help anybody else be right with God. Again, you take a look at this passage of scripture, verse number six, it talks about teaching the word diligently to to your children, but the first four verses of that tell you to, first of all, take heed for yourself. And so again, we as Christians, when we raise our children, the Bible is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. God's word holds all the answers of what we're looking for. So first of all, to be able to help other people from the word, we need to make sure that we've helped ourselves first and foremost. 
you can't begin to teach your children what they need to know about life and to raise them to love and fear God and obey God if you don't do that, first of all, yourself. Now, none of us are born into this world automatic followers of Christ. You might have been born into a family that goes to church or a family who called themselves Christian. You might have even had parents that were involved in ministry in some aspect. But that does not make you a Christian. All of us who sinned against the holy God, all of us have broken God's law, not once or twice, or that thing one time we did when we were in high school that we're embarrassed about. We sin against God almost every single day, not just the things that we do, but the things that we fail to do. And because of our sin against God, it's created a distance between us and God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam took of that fruit, that that God told him, the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And some people say, oh, look, Adam took of that fruit and he didn't die. He didn't die physically that day, but that day he died spiritually. And a separation was created between him and God. The day that you were born... There was created a separation between you and God because of our sin. And it's not a matter of doing better. It's not a matter of turning over a new leaf or trying a new way of of doing my life. It's a matter of now I have something in my life that's created a distance between me and God that I cannot close on my own. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The consequences for what you and I have done wrong is death in hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. That will settle our score with God. But here's the thing. God loves you. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God wants you to be with him. And so God made a way. Romans chapter five, verse number eight. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was supposed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus was punished in my place. I was supposed to die for my sin, but Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to endure the wrath of God poured out upon my sin, but Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us and had God's wrath poured out upon him because he became our sin so that we could be made right with God. And Jesus died upon the cross He gave up the ghost of his own power. He rose again the third day from the tomb of his own power, which we will celebrate like none other three weeks from now, but we celebrate the resurrection of Christ today as well. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, proving once and for all that he had conquered sin, death, and the grave. And here's the good news. Anyone that comes to him can have that same victory as well. You see, you deserve to be punished, but Jesus took your punishment if you'll allow him to pay that for you. The Bible says that you have to believe in your heart that, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead. You have to confess with your mouth that you've wronged God, that you've sinned against God, and only then can you be made right with God. The Bible calls this being saved or born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Friend, if you've been born again, you can't begin to, to parent well, influence well, love well, lead well, unless you've first been changed yourself. And being saved is not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of doing religious things. It's not about being baptized or going to a catechism or taking a class. It's about, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he is the only way to heaven and I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And that's not something you have to do every day. It's a once and for all. Once you're saved, you don't need to be resaved or reborn again or anything like that. You're good to go. You're a child of God at that point. 
And friend, if there's never been a time in your life where you've done that, today is your opportunity to put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior and be born again and to know what a real father is supposed to be. And that's what we learn from our Heavenly Father. So again, before I can help anybody else, I need to make sure that I've taken care of myself first. It's important to note that a blessed life always begins and ends with God as the first priority. If we take a look at our passage this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 3. Here therefore, Israel, observe to do it that it may be well with thee, and you might increase mightily as the Lord God of our Father hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. God says, I want to bless you. I want to give things that you've never even seen before. I want to pour out my blessing in a way that you've never experienced before. I want to lead you guys into a land that has blessings untold. And again, this is where we see principles. You and I will not get a physical piece of land that physically has milk and honey flowing on it. But God wants to give you blessings untold if you're willing to obey him if you're willing to walk according to his statutes and his commandments as he's commanded you, guaranteed. But verse number five has some critical language in there that you need to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all of your might, with all of your heart. That's really important because that might sound familiar to you. That's because Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. And so Jesus says that the entire portion of scripture all of the Bible, that this is the greatest commandment in all the Bible. So Jesus says this right here, love the Lord your God is the greatest commandment. It's it's funny because people had come to Jesus and tried to trick him. Hey, what's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? Hey, try going up to a police officer sometime and saying, hey, what's the most important law on the books today for the city and county of Honolulu? Just one. What's the most important? It's like, Maybe kill or, or steal or sexual assault. I'm not really sure. Here's, Jesus didn't, didn't miss a beat because he is God, has always been God, and will forever be God. He knew the question. He also knew the answer. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. And the second greatest commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. Here's what he said. The whole Bible can be summarized by two commandments. Love God, love other people. That's it. So well, that seems kind of simplistic, doesn't it? I don't know, does it? You take a look at the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That takes care of that commandment. Thou shalt have no graven images. It takes care of that commandment. Maybe things like lying, thieving, committing adultery, blasphemy, all these things could be covered by the, these two commandments, right? They, they fall into one of these two categories. Basically, love God with every fiber of your being and love every person that you ever meet the same way that you love yourself. So again, before I can begin to lead someone, I gotta make sure that I've taken care of myself first. You see, it's very difficult to lead someone to a place that you've never been on your own. Look, I can make a, a, a trip to the Holy Land. I can look on the internet and find some great places to go and some tours to take and some things to see. I've never been to the Holy Land before. You'd be much better off finding someone who has been there before that knows all the sites and when to go and what's open and what's closed and things like that and get a tour guide that knows their stuff, right? You don't lead the young men in your house to be men of God. It would do you well to be a man of God yourself. 
You want to lead the women of God and your, the little women in your house to be women of God one day? It would behoove you to be a woman of God yourself. And so it all begins, though, with loving God first. It all begins with loving other people second. We see that Jesus said this is the greatest commandment, and as God takes his rightful place, everything else falls into place. God says, put me first, everything else works itself out. Put me first, everything works itself out. You say, well, that seems kind of simplistic, doesn't it? It sounds that way, but it's really not. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us a laundry list of the people who will be blessed, the peacemakers, the poor in spirit. And then he goes on in in Matthew chapter six, verse number 33, and he says this, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, hey, you, know, you worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna wear. Don't worry about any of those things. Just put God first and obey him and everything else works itself out. And again, this is why it's really important that you know your Bible too. Because I've heard pastors, again, well-meaning pastors, say things like, well, the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, you missed a really critical part there. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. It's not enough to just say, oh, I love God. No, you have to obey God. And God even says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so love and obedience can't be split from one another. They actually coexist together. They're tied together. So if you seek God, you also have to seek his righteousness, which means to do what he says. And if you do that, here's a promise from Christ himself. All these things that your heart seeks shall be added unto you. Hey, just put me first. I'll work everything else out. Now again, this is an important time to also pull over for a second and say that this verse can be used out of context and inappropriately to say that God gives you everything you want. Please make no mistakes. God is not an idol giver. He doesn't give you things to to fuel your idolatry. God's not gonna give you a new car if you put him first. He's not gonna give you lots of money because you put him first. He's not gonna give you accolades and wealth and status because you put him first. God is gonna give you the things that your heart truly craves. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's what the Bible says. But again, God doesn't give you the carnal desires of your heart. He gives you the spiritual desires of your heart. And you know what your heart really craves? Love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what your heart truly craves. And let me just tell you this. I know the Father that gives all those things, good gifts, liberally. That's what your heart desires, and God's willing to give you those if you put him first. But you see, God expects full ownership and devotion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You've got one God, and you need to worship him. This is really important because, again, we, we took a look at, I think it's verse number 17 or so in our passage where he says, hey, there's going to be other gods. You don't follow those other gods. You follow me. God doesn't share the limelight with anyone. God doesn't share his throne with anyone. God doesn't share his position with anyone else. And you want to place somebody else in God's position, you're free to do that, but please don't expect God's blessings. It's funny to me sometimes people chase after the things of this world, and then they wonder why they don't get God's blessings. Well, you're chasing the wrong thing. And it comes back to, it's so simple. Sowing and reaping, right? If you plant corn, what can you harvest? Somebody help me. Corn. 
I was planting corn, but I was really hoping I got watermelon this season. Oh, man, maybe next year. You look at you, you, you're an idiot. You don't understand how this works. You want watermelon, you plant watermelon seeds. But it's so funny. People chase after the world. They chase after sin. And then they wonder like, I don't know why God's not blessing me. Well, the seeds that you've sown are corrupt, terrible, carnal seeds. You don't get spiritual blessings from that. And so it comes back to God doesn't want to share me with the world. God expects me to be fully his. You know why? Because we've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We're a purchased possession. According to the Bible, we are bond slaves that were purchased. And God's like, hey, if you don't want to follow me, that's fine. I'm not going to chase after you. I'm not going to force you. But you'll find that my ways are best. It might be too late. It might be after much heartache. But you'll always find that my ways are best. And placing anything above God is always idolatry. (laughs) Now, I hope in your home that you don't have any little carved statues that you set up that you put out offerings to or burn candles to or anything like that. That's idolatry. That's garbage. You should put that away. Remember when we were in Southern California, you go down the, uh, there was one aisle uh, where they had all like candles with like different saints on them, Mary and stuff like that. And you could buy these candles and take them home and light them and pray certain prayers and stuff like that. That's idolatry. That's witchcraft. That's not of God. That's not biblical whatsoever, okay? So I hope you don't have any statues. I hope you're not praying to saints. I hope you got none of that. So you might say, I don't necessarily have any idols in my life. <laughs> Be very, very careful because idolatry is not limited specifically to, to statues, carved statues, I would submit this to you, and you might get really mad at me, and if if you get mad at me, I'll give you a hug later and tell you that I'm sorry, Uh, but I'm saying this because I love you. If you say, I don't have time to read the Bible and pray today, but you spend six hours watching Netflix every night, I'm telling you, you have an idolatry problem. You say, oh, I just, I just struggle, you know, getting into the Bible and finding it appealing. It just doesn't make sense to me and I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. Yet you spend four hours a day scrolling a social media feed. I'll say your problem is not biblical understanding. Your problem is idolatry. Well, I don't have time to teach my kids. I mean, they're going to soccer practice all the time and uh, they're always going and spending the, the weekend with friends. And the weekend, I just want to chill out. I just want to do my own thing. You don't have a problem instructing your children. You have an idolatry problem. And again, this is hard to hear. I get it. I'm with you. But I just want to speak truth in your life. That when we place anything above God, we have an idolatry problem. There's a family several years ago, we were, we were our, our church was fairly new at the time. Who we call it makes nine years old uh, in October. So excited about that. It's going to be a blast. You won't want to miss it. Uh, but uh, we were very young, probably the first six months or so. And uh, there's a family that came and um, they had uh, come in the, uh, the fall it was. And they got plugged in, was coming to small groups on, on Wednesdays and stuff like that. I thought, man, these folks are really going to make it. And they told us, they said, uh, well, Pastor, this will be our last Sunday. We'll be back when football season's over. <laughs> and I laughed. I was like, wow, ah, it's so funny. I was like, no, we're serious. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. I would just encourage you to put the things of God before football. No, it's what we do every year. Okay. See you in the end of January. Whenever the Super Bowl's over, you know we'll be back. Okay. Anybody want to guess if they're still here? They never came back. Is that shocking? 
I don't think anybody would find that surprising. Why? Because it was an idolatry problem. But here's the thing. Idolatry doesn't just take place on Sundays. It takes place every single day of our lives. What's the most important thing to you? Where do you place your importance? What is your God? And again, your God isn't who you say it is. Your God is the way that you live. And so we need to guard against idolatry. For us, if we're going to lead others to Christ, specifically our children, we need to make sure that the Word of God becomes our devotion and our delight. Man, the Word of God is so powerful. It's a supernatural book like none other that you could possibly imagine. Take a look at verse number uh, six in our passage, if you would. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest in the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them with a sign, uh, a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. You see, there comes a point in time where you just have to do what's right because it's the right thing. You should read your Bible every single day because it's the right thing to do. You should pray every day because it's the right thing to do. You should be in church every single time the doors are open because it's the right thing to do. But there should come a point in your life where I really look forward to reading the Bible today. I really need to read the Bible today. I can't wait to go to God in prayer today. I'm really looking forward to praying this evening with my wife. I'm really looking forward to praying tomorrow morning with my prayer list. I'm really looking forward to going to church and gathering together with God's people and singing about God's goodness and his faithfulness. I'm really excited about getting the opportunity to meet new Christian friends on a Sunday morning that are my brothers and sisters. I'm really looking forward to that. So it has to start at some point as devotion, but then there should come a point where I actually enjoy this because this is the life that I have chosen for myself and for my family. And again, you'll see God's blessings in your life when you begin to do that. And so again, for you and I, we gotta do what's right, oftentimes just because it's the right thing to do. But here's the thing about the word of God. The word of God always gives us the appropriate perspective. The word of God gives us the opportunity to see things through a different lens, if you will. It gives us the opportunity to see life the way that it truly is, not for the way it appears. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound really weird on the surface, but it's, it's truth. What you and I see taking place in the world on a day-to-day basis is merely a facade. It's a mirage. It's a very thin veneer that once you get a quarter inch below the surface, you can actually see everything for what it truly is. I see people over at Alamoana Center. <laughs> you might not know, the Alamoana Center is the largest outdoor shopping mall in the world worldwide, largest outdoor shopping center in the world. Five years ago, they underwent a $500 million renovation to make it even larger. It was already in the, literally in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest outdoor shopping center. They spent half a billion to make it even bigger. You go over there, people are just filled with shopping bags full of stuff. And you might look on the surface and go, wow, I'm really impressed with that, that's, that's neat. But you get a quarter inch below the surface, you say, wait a minute. People are buying things with money that they don't have to impress people that they don't like with stuff that they never really wanted to begin with. (laughs) And you see, like, that's not going to make you happy. And for every person, myself included, that thought to myself, oh, when I get that car and I can picture myself behind the wheel of that car, that car is going to make me happy. Until the first time it gets dinged in the, the parking lot. It's the first time that uh, somebody throws a rock and breaks the windshield. It gets a scratch on it. 
the, has to take it to the mechanic and get some work done on it. Now it's not so much fun anymore, is it? So again, we have to see things for what they truly are. Stuff doesn't bring happiness. It's idolatry. Money doesn't bring happiness. You say, oh, I say money doesn't buy happiness, but it sure can buy a lot of stuff. Okay, I'll give you that. But you know what Solomon found? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He found in great riches came great sorrow. The more money he got, the sadder he got. Isn't that interesting? The wisest man to ever live found out that money just brings sorrow. I'm telling you to have appropriate perspective. It's interesting. If you take a look at our passage, uh, verse number seven, um, no, verse number eight. Thou shalt bind them with a sign upon thine hand. Thou shalt be as frontless between thy eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and upon thy gates. The idea here is this. It's not that they would actually take a string, which some uh, Orthodox Jews still do. They write scripture on a sheet of paper. They roll it up and put it in a roll. And they put a string through it and they tie it around their forehead so that they actually have a scroll of scripture between their eyes. And they'll take a scroll of scripture and they'll place it in a bracelet upon their hands. Again, trying to be obedient to this passage. But the idea wasn't that we should get some really cool jewelry out of this. Here's the idea. That everywhere that you look, you're looking at things from a biblical perspective. That everything that your hand does, it does with the idea of God's word in mind. That this gives perspective to everything that I do. That the Bible has the answer for everything everything in life. That was the idea behind it, not that we would get some, some jewelry and tie it around our forehead. Because God's word gives perspective, but God's word also illuminates the path for us as well. You wanna know what you're supposed to do in life? The Bible will tell you. You wanna figure out what direction you're supposed to go? The Bible tells you. The Bible tells us, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's interesting that when the Bible compares itself to a lantern or a lamp, the lanterns don't illuminate the entire path, they just illuminate the next few steps. Isn't that interesting? That when the Bible tells you what to do, it's not gonna tell you where you're supposed to be 20 years from now, it's telling you where you're supposed to be today and tomorrow. You see, many times you and I see the direction that God has set for our life and we wanna kinda of have our input on it, right? Well, if God could show me where I'm supposed to be in 10 years, I would, I would give it some thought, you know? <laughs> well, first of all, if, if Jesus Christ is Lord, you don't get an opinion. But secondly, here's the thing. If you knew where you were going to be 10 years from now, it might terrify you. You ever thought about that? Oh, I wonder where I'm going to be 10 years from now. Dead. Oh. Uh, I wonder where I'm going to be five years from now. Also dead. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to know that. Exactly. Don't worry about it, you know. Had you told me 20 years ago, we're, well, I don't know where I'm going to be 20 years from now. You're going to be a pastor in Honolulu. No, I'm not. And I'm going to do everything in my life to make sure that I don't do that, Right? Why? Because God isn't giving us the full path. He's just telling us one step at a time. Follow me, obey me. And here's a, a, a trick for you. You want to be walking with Jesus 20 years from now? Walk with Jesus today and just worry about today. And tomorrow when you wake up, walk with Jesus tomorrow. And do that every single day for the rest of your life. In 20 years from now, you'll find yourself smack dab in the center of God's will. Guaranteed. Absolutely will not fail. Because it's a promise. And again, as we allow God's word to give us perspective, as we allow it to illuminate our path, the word of God also uses the word to align our heart with the heart of the Father. It allows us to keep my heart in check. 
when my heart goes the opposite direction where God wants me to go, it's because I haven't yet kept my heart lined up with what the Father wants for my life. Because here's the thing, our hearts want to drift, don't they? I just want to go my own way, I just want to do my own thing. I'm not going that far off. I mean, it's not like I'm like worshiping the devil or anything. I mean, it's like I'm just doing my own thing, right? But it's a slow drift, isn't it? Saying the word keeps my heart lined up with the heart of the Father. Hey, whatever's important to him has to be important to me. Whatever he says to do, I don't get a choice whether or not I want to obey it. I just need to obey it. Psalm 119, verse number nine, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed, therefore, according to thy word. So, man, I got I to be in the word every day to keep my heart in check, to keep my life right with God, to make sure that my life stays on point. Because again, I can't help other people if I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But here's the next part. We have to take God's word and we have to teach it diligently to our children. Take a look at verse number seven, if you will. Now shall teach them diligently unto thy children. And shall talk of them when thou sittest down in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. See, when we talk about diligently teaching the word to our children, this is called discipleship. Discipleship is what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Parents, you are a discipler. Your children are disciplees. They follow whatever path you set before them. And you might say, well, I haven't really set a path for my children. Great. Then you have set a path for your children to wonder whatever direction that they want, to get whatever they want, and to follow whatever seems right to them. So you're discipling, you just might just be a terrible discipler. But you're teaching something. You're always teaching. And the interesting thing about teaching is we often think that we're teaching whenever we like pull out a lesson plan and, and put together a lesson and we have some really helpful things that we're gonna say. We think of our, our, our children's ministry teachers over there, they're teaching children today, right? No, 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 you're teaching your kids when you get into the car today after church. You're teaching them. When you say, good grief, I didn't think the pastor was ever gonna shut up. You're teaching, right? If we could just find a church that had better parking, we could just find a church that had more bathrooms, we'd find a church that have less preaching, I think we'd be okay. Guess what? Guess what? You're teaching. That's a teaching moment right there. You didn't pull out a lesson plan, but you told them right then what's really important in life. So we've got to be careful with that. Again, that's why Prior to diligently teaching your children, the previous four verses are about, are about making sure that your heart's right and you're walking with God and you love God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. Then you can actually teach. So this process is discipleship. Verse number uh, seven, that word there where it says, shall teach them diligently. It's one Hebrew word that the best English word we have to translate is the word inculcate. And I don't know about you, I'm just going to be honest with you. I had to look that word up in the dictionary because I have no idea what that means. But it's a really good word. It means to instill an attitude, an idea, or a habit by persistent instruction. I thought that word persistent was helpful. It's not a matter of like, well, my, I told my kids to read their Bible, but they don't. Okay, then you need to tell them every day. Well, my kids know that, it, that prayer is important, but we don't really pray as a family. Okay, then you need to be more persistent in your instruction. Well, I told them that one time. Well, you gotta come back to it again. And I'll help you here as well. If your idea for the Christian growth of your children is to drop them off for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, 
you're woefully misguided. You're way behind. This is a supplement to what you're doing. This is like a side order or something along with the meal that you make throughout the week. This is just a little sprinkling on the top of the cake that you've already baked. And you say, well, I didn't bake a cake. Then your kids just got a handful of sprinkles today is all they got. I'm thankful that they have it, but they need more. It's not our job to teach your kids the Bible. It's your job. And again, I don't mean that in a, in a mean way. I'm saying that we're just coming alongside of you to augment what you're already doing. I know people who send their kids to Christian school and think to themselves, well, that alleviates me of a lot of responsibility at home. No, it doesn't. It gives you more responsibility. What are they teaching you at Christian school? Does it align with our values and what we think is important, what the Bible actually says? The greatest teacher your children will ever have is their parents. First teacher, greatest influence, guaranteed. From the time your kids were born, you were telling them, don't touch that. Don't put that in your mouth. You were teaching them. You were their first teacher. You're going to have the most influence over their entire lifetime. Make sure that you do it well. Again, we see in verse uh, number 20 of our passage here this morning. And when thy son asketh thee time to come, saying, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and judgments which the Lord hath commanded you? Then you shall say unto your son, we were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. He said, hey, your kids are going to ask what the big deal is with Egypt and Pharaoh, and you need to tell them what God did. Your kids are going to ask one day, do we really have to go to church every Sunday? And you have an answer for them. Yes, we do, because we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. He's the most important thing in the world, and we get to go to church. We don't have to go to church. That's a teaching moment right there. Hey, why do we pray before every meal? Can't we just like pray once and it cover everything? We pray because we're thankful, because without God, we wouldn't have anything to eat for dinner tonight. That's teaching that's instruction. That's discipleship. Again, my kids got questions. We got answers. But discipleship requires intentional training in the scriptures and how it applies to our lives. I was thankful that I grew up in church from before I was born till the time I left for the Navy in high school. I was in church every single Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If there's something going on at the church, there's a fish fry, we were there. There's a church cleanup day, we were there. Whatever was taking place, we were always there. And I'm thankful for that, I really am. Parents showed me the importance of church. Now, it could have been a Bible preaching, Bible teaching church. They taught a lot of Bible stories, but no application. So I walked away with a lot of facts about the Bible, but not really knowing what to do with those facts because I never saw it in anyone's lives. So we can't, train our children a bunch of Bible facts and disconnect them from actual Christian living. Discipleship is about taking the truth of the Bible and applying it to your life this week. My, my daughter, McKeely, and I were on the way to school uh, several weeks ago, and she said, something, something, the dumb dress code at school. And I was like, well, sweetheart, dress codes aren't dumb. They're there for a reason, you know. Rules aren't there to, to be a drag. They're there to help you. And she's like, I know, it's just these, some rules that say you can't do this, can't do that. And some people do it anyways, and whatever, whatever. I said, hey, rules are there for our benefit. They're there to help us, you know. Can you imagine if there wasn't a speed limit on the highway? You know, if the speed limit was 110 miles an hour. I said, for, you know, for every 10 miles an hour over the speed limit that you go, your, your chances of death increase exponentially. 
<laughs> How many of you realize it's probably a drag sometime having a pastor for a dad on the way to school? But anyways, uh, <laughs> we were having this conversation and I said, the Bible speaks about modesty. Do you know what modesty means? And she goes, yes, dad. Said, no, tell me what it means. It means being covered up. No, it doesn't. That's not what the word modesty means. I said, we started talking about cars. And I said, if you saw somebody driving a Toyota Corolla, what would you think about it, right? What would you think about it? She was like, I don't even know what a Toyota Corolla is. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. It's a modest vehicle. Nobody thinks to themselves, like, I can't wait till I grow up. The first car I'm ever going to buy is going to be a Toyota Corolla, right? <laughs> Nobody's ever been pumping a gas at, at a gas station. Somebody going, hey, what your Corolla you got there, man? That's nice. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that in the history of the world, ever. You know why? Because it's a modest vehicle. You see a Lamborghini driving down the street, you immediately stop. You're like, ooh, did you see that? People poke each other. They look at it. People take pictures of it. There was a, a, a Lamborghini parked out in front of the church here in probably six months or so ago. I thought somebody had given the pastor a really nice gift, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> I walk out, and it's out there, and there's, like, people standing around, like, taking their pictures with it and stuff like that, and, like, they walk off, and then another group of people walks up down the sidewalk. People just walking by, taking their pictures with this car, taking pictures of the inside of the car, the outside of the car, standing around the car, looking inside, putting their hands on the glass. And I thought to myself, if that was my car, I don't want you touching my car. That's for sure, right? But here's the thing. Nobody stopped and looked at the Toyota Corolla. Strange, huh? And I said, one car was a flashy car that says, hey, look at me. This is awesome. You want to check this out? You want to take your picture with this? This is something else, huh? It draws attention to itself. The other car could commit a robbery and you wouldn't notice the difference, right? Why? Because it's modest. And we talked about how modesty is not covering up. The Muslims do that. Modesty is about living your life and dressing in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself to say, hey, look at me. I said, guys need to be drawn to you for your character, for your love for the Lord, for who you are as a woman, not the way that you dress or the way that your body is shaped. And when you dress modestly, you're not drawing attention to those things. And she was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. What did we do? We talked about how the scripture applies to our lives as Christians in a real practical way, and that was a discipleship moment for me and my daughter in the car, and she could not wait to get out of the car when she got to school. Uh, but <laughs> it's just what happens when you have a pastor for a dad. But here's the thing. We've got to have conversations like that. We just do. If we want to lead our children well to be disciples of Christ, we have to have discipleship type of conversations with our children you might say, well, and again, the idea here is that we're creating a lifestyle that our children can copy. They look at our life, the way that we live our life, and they try to copy that. And you might look at that and go, well, I don't know that I'm ready to be copied because I'm not perfect. Good. Then you get to learn how to repent when you're not perfect. You get the opportunity to repent to your children. Get that. See, I don't know if I was ever taught this, but I, I came away with the idea that true leaders never admit when they're wrong and they never ask for forgiveness because that's a sign of weakness. And when parents make decisions, whether they be good or bad, they've got a stake in the ground and they're not moving. Even if they're wrong, they'll go to the death before they admit that they're wrong. Let me just tell you, that's not biblical advice, that's not good advice, and that's a great way to destroy your entire life. 
Because again, when I'm wrong, I need to be willing to say, hey, I'm wrong. I remember when being confronted with this idea of repenting to your own children. I thought to myself, again, biggest form of weakness that I ever have to apologize to my kids. Like they should apologize to me, right? I remember the first time I did it. That was probably seven or eight, late. Hey, buddy, I just want to tell you that what I said over there, I was wrong. I want to tell you that I'm sorry. I shouldn't have lost my temper the way that I did. Um, and what I said was incredibly inappropriate. I want to tell you, I've already told God I'm sorry, and now I need to tell you I'm sorry. And he sat there kind of confused for a minute, and he's like, oh, Dad, it's fine. I don't care. No, no, I'm going to stop you there, son. It's not fine. The Bible calls that a sin. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry, and I want to ask you to forgive me. And Dad's going to change. I don't want to continue to live like this. And you know what that did for, for my son and me both? It helped us understand that it's okay to admit when you're wrong. And you can heal from that and you can grow from that. That's a discipleship moment. Hey, I want you to follow my life except when I'm obviously wrong. And when I'm obviously wrong, I'm going to make it obviously right by repenting for it. Because again, the framework of what holds our relationship together is the gospel. We're sinners, but God forgives sins and gives us power over sin to be better than we were before. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. And so the gospel fuels our parenting relationship by allowing me to not be perfect, but live a life that's copyable because when I blow it, I go back to my source of grace and I repent and repent well. That'll go so far in your marriage as well. That's not just a parenting tip. If you've wronged your spouse, hey, sweetheart, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me, I wanna change. I don't wanna continue to live like this. I've done this way too often and you don't deserve this. Man, that's gonna bring some healing. Man, Repenting to a coworker, hey, what I said last week, I was under a lot of stress and I shouldn't have said what I said. And even being under stress, not an excuse for what I did. I want you to know that I'm really sorry. Would you forgive me for that? Can you imagine the type of healing that that would bring? And you say, well, oh, I know people who just blow it off or use that as an opportunity. Hey, whatever they do, you've done the right thing. Whatever they do with what you've done the right way is, is between them and God. But you've done the right thing. So you need to be a professional repenter for sure. Verse number seven tells us the truth, though, that we have to always faithfully live as committed followers of Jesus in every area of our lives. Take a look at verse number seven. We'll Deuteronomy chapter six, verse seven. <coughs> thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou lowest down, when thou risest up. Basically, all the time, talk about God's goodness, live in God's goodness, live in obedience. All the time. In the house, outside of the house, on the street, when you go to bed, when you wake up. Just continually talking about God, living the Christian life consistently. There was a uh, man that started attending our church when Huey College was just about two years old. He, he'd come with his girlfriend, and, and you could tell that she was the more spiritual of the two. And we had to talk one, one day, and I said, Hey, Mike, I said, Has there ever been a time in your life where you were saved or born again? He said, no, I'm an atheist. My question is always this. When did you stop believing? Right? Because nobody's born an atheist. Somebody told them that. That's, that's learned behavior. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, everybody believes that there's a God and they're without excuse before God because he's revealed himself unto all men. So if you stopped believing, you chose to do that. When did you stop believing? He said, when I was in high school. Man, tell me what happened. 
He said, I grew up in church my whole life. My parents were super involved in our youth group. They were our, actually our youth leaders. My mom would lead music, and my dad would, would, would give the lesson and preach. And he said, man, every week, every Wednesday night at teen, uh, teen worship, because it was like all about my parents, and they had a big group. Everybody thought the world of them. So he said, teen camp every summer was a huge thing for us. And he said, just spent 24 hours a day for five days straight, just having a blast and being in church and singing and hearing preaching and stuff like that. And he goes, I lived it, man. I said, what happened? He said, everybody thought my parents were these super Christians, but the second we got in the, the car, he said, they were cussing and fighting and, and talking trash about people in our church and running down our pastor and gossiping about other people in the church. He said, in high school, my dad started having an affair with one of the ladies in the church and people knew about it, but they just decided to keep it quiet and cover it up and act like it didn't exist, but everybody knew that it existed. He goes, and I thought to myself, every single person in this church is just playing a part I believe that everybody here doesn't really believe in God at all. They're just faking it. And he said, so I decided I don't believe in God either, but I'm not going to play a part either. So I just stopped believing. And it broke my heart because I heard, here's a 13-year-old boy whose parents were hypocrites, and it ruined his faith for the rest of his life. I'd love to tell you that he got saved. He didn't. I'd love to tell you that he's still in church. He's not. But he had a brief window where he was interested in the things of God again. But he'd seen so much hypocrisy, he's so damaged by his parents that he couldn't come to the place that there was actually a loving God that cared about him. Because if he did, it would have been real for his parents. That's a heavy load that a parent has to carry to realize that I'm setting my child up for future success or failure based on not where I send them to school or what kind of grades they get, but for the way I behave and the way that I train them in my home. That's huge because you can't outsource that. That means we as parents need to be constantly growing you need to be reading books on parenting, about being a better Christian. For me, I try to read like 40 books a year. Uh, I read books on, on pastoring, parenting, marriage, uh, you know, Christian life, prayer, fasting. I mean, like, I'm trying to read books because I don't know it all, but I want to be better. My, my son Thatcher, he's uh, 27. He was our first. He was our guinea pig. We're still trying to figure out what worked and what didn't with him, you know. So, but here's the thing. I don't want to give up. I want to be constantly growing, constantly trying to do better. Our daughter Tulu is four, so I got a 27-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a four-year-old. That's my crazy life, right? I got a toddler and a grown-up, uh, and so two grown-ups. So uh, again, I want to do better, and so I, got, I need to be constantly growing. And again, it's not a matter of like, well, my parents didn't do this for me. I want to be better than my parents. Well, my parents didn't teach me that. I want to be better than my parents. I want my kids to be better than me. I want my kids to have opportunity to serve Jesus that I didn't have. And it frustrates me to know in when people say like, oh, I just want my kids to have the things that I didn't have. And they're talking about a new car on their 16th birthday or their own bedroom or, uh, you know, they want them to have, be able to go to whatever private college that they want to and pay their way for them. Your kids might benefit from those things, but they don't need those things. They need your love. They need your attention. They need you to put inside of them the word of God that will be there long after any other student loans have been repaid. That's what they need. And you want your kids to have something good? Give them something that they really need. But the part about this too is that we have to be consistent. It's not a matter of just doing this once. It's not like, you know, 
discipling my kids or teaching them the Bible something that I can check off. It's not something I can like, oh, I get their, their dental appointments every six months and we check that off. I, I, I disciple my kids and so I don't have to do it again for six months. No, no, no. It's a constant thing. It's a daily thing that I have to continually to put the word of God in them because I'm trying to instill it in them. I'm trying to plant something in them that will grow 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. But it requires that I put something in them early. Three final thoughts and we're done. First of all, hypocrisy destroys the work we're trying to accomplish. Kids are really good at sniffing out duplicity. You know that. They're really quick to point out shortcomings that they see and failures. I remember I was probably eight years old and uh, my dad was sitting in the car. We were sitting at the IGA grocery store. And my mom was taking longer than she normally would. And my dad was sitting in the car and he was getting impatient because he'd ran out of cigarettes. And so my dad started smoking when he was 12. He still smokes to this day, 72. So he's been smoking for 60 years. But I was like eight. And it was taking a long time. And he didn't have cigarettes. He said, uh, he gave me a, a $10 bill and said, hey, Aunt, go in and buy me a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much cigarettes are, but they're considerably more than $10 a carton at this point. Uh, but uh, he said, go and buy me a carton of cigarettes. Okay. And so I ate, go in and buy cigarettes, bring them back out to my dad. My dad, as he's unwrapping the pack, he turns around in the car and he points his finger at me. He says, don't you ever, ever smoke cigarettes as long as you live. Do you understand me? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. And he turned around, pats the pack like that, pulls one out, lights it up, starts smoking. And I'm like... What? You just told me never to, I'm so confused right now. I mean, I was like eight, but at eight, I had figured out what you're saying doesn't match what you're doing, and I don't like that. And so our kids are really quick to sniff out duplicity, and so make sure whatever you're saying is backed up by what you're doing. It's been said before, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What does that mean? That means your kids care a lot more about what you do than what you say. And so again, you can proclaim to love Jesus, but if you're not living like it, your kids realize something's not right here. You can say, oh, we don't use words like that in our house, and then you turn on a, a television show that has 18 F words in it, and they'll say, wait a minute, we can't talk like that in our house, but we listen to stuff like that in our house? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Oh, you're not allowed to, to go to that party, you know, because there's going to be alcohol there. Wait a minute. You guys are drinking over here. What's the, the, there's a disconnect here. Oh, we do it responsibly. Well, I'll do it responsibly. And again, it's a matter of, I want to model the type of behavior that I want for my children, and I don't want there to be any hypocrisy because that ruins what I'm trying to accomplish. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Man, once you... you get figured out as being duplicitous? The question is, what else are you duplicitous in? Because according to the Bible, you're unstable in all your ways. Ephesians chapter, four, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 4, says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. My wife used to quote that verse to me when I would pick on my boys. Boys need to be picked on. They need to learn how to man up. You, know, you need to flick them on the back of the head sometimes. Men, you should wrestle with your boys don't wrestle with them, wrestle with them, right? Kids need to learn that. You need to pin them down and poke them in their sternum. They need that. It builds character in them, right? My wife says, oh, the Bible says you're not supposed to provoke your children to wrath. That's not what it means. You know what that means? Don't make your kids angry because you can't live a life that you claim to live. Hypocrisy turns my children to wrath. 
but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord instead. Next, the word does the work. The Bible gives us all the instructions that we need. Let's live our life according to the Bible. Hey, Dad, is it okay if I buy Call of Duty World War 28? I don't know. What does the Bible say about that? Oh, come on. Don't bring that. No, seriously. If the Bible guides our life, is it appropriate for us to play a video game like that? Let's lay it out and see what's there. Hey, if we have a game that's rated M for mature because of foul language, should we as Christians allow that to enter into our home? Let's take a look at what the Bible says. And if you could show me a Bible verse that supports the fact that we can listen to filth on our headsets and not be affected by it, I'm 100% for it. Oh, come on, Dad. No, the Bible is our guide. Because here's the thing. I can give my kids rules, no rated M for mature games, you know, we're not gonna do that, no R-rated movies for you, you know, you're not allowed on social media after 10 p.m. I can put all those rules in them, and that might work for a while, but look, there's coming a day when they leave the house and those rules don't apply anymore. You ever thought about that? But get this, just stay with me for a second. If I plant the seed of the word of God in their life and it continues to grow, whenever they move out of the house, they don't have a list of rules, but they still have the word of God inside of them. And they will always be beholden to the word of God, not mom and dad's rules. And so I do my kids a great disservice when I teach them to follow rules instead of following Jesus. So the word does the work. What does the Bible say? Is that appropriate for for Christians to, to be involved in? Bottom line, if we do our part, we can trust the Lord with the outcome. A great promise from Proverbs 22, verse number six, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I sat with so many parents who's raised their kids in church and taught them the right thing, who are heartbroken because they have strayed from the faith. I always encourage them with this verse. They say, well, I know, but they're not, they've departed from it. It says when they're old, and maybe they're not old yet. Seriously, this is just a chapter in their life. It's not the end of their life. It's not the end of the book. So be patient. You did the work. You planted the seed. Pray for God to bring an increase. Continue to pray for God's hand upon your children to bring them back to him. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a parent is pray for God's chastening upon my children. God, would you make their life so miserable that they would have no choice but to repent? It's hard, but train up a child in the way he should go and he's old enough not depart from it. Here's a thought that keeps me up sometimes at night. Everybody in this room today has stories about your parents, don't you? About your mom or your dad, or maybe your story is I didn't have a dad. Uh, maybe your story is I didn't have a mom. That's your story. One of these days after we're dead and gone, people are going to be sitting around one day, maybe at a men's conference, maybe at church, maybe at work, and they'll say, hey, what was your relationship like with your dad? And then people are going to start telling stories about us. I hope they're good stories. I hope they talk about how much I love them, how much I wanted God's best for them, how much I always took them to church and always taught them the right thing, how I wasn't perfect, but I tried. And when I wasn't perfect, then I came back and apologized. Hey, what was your, what was your mom like growing up? Man, I hope my kids have stories to tell about my wife, about how she was gracious and kind and how her, her husband was a knucklehead most of the time, but she was gracious. <laughs> I'm the husband who was the knucklehead. Because here's the thing. If I want them to tell good stories about me 20 years from now, I gotta be making the good stories today, right? 
You might have a story like, well, my parents weren't like that. Good, then you get to, to make a new branch off your family tree that we're gonna do things God's way from here on out. Oh, I didn't have that type of upbringing. Good, I'll help you to give your children that. I'll help you to be a man of God. I'll help you to be a woman of God. I'll help you to raise your kids right. Teenagers, I'll help you to be a man and woman of God. I'll give you all the tools that you need to do it. All you have to do is walk the path if you're willing. I'm willing to help you even walk the path. But what we can't do is just let society raise our children. Look, if you take a back seat and decide, I'm not really all that interested in discipling my children, let me just tell you, the world will gladly disciple your children for you. Gladly. I think all we have to do is turn on the news and see the things that they're teaching our children. I don't want them to learn that, so I've got to give them something better. I want to give them the Word of God. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure that heaven's your home, put your faith and trust in Christ today. That's the beginning of everything for you. To have a Father that loves you and, and cares for you and can give you the tools that you need to live a life that's productive. You might be sitting here today saying, well, that message didn't really apply to me because I don't have children. Hey, look over there. There's about 70 children that are looking over here to see what Christian grown-ups live like. And when they see you at the grocery store, they see you at the mall, they see you at Walmart, they see you driving past their neighborhood, they say, hey, that person goes to my church. That's what a Christian lives like. So you're automatically a teacher of children, whether you've chosen to be or not, because you're Christian. Let's live like that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.